Welcome to the podcast for A Better Life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Brian Peck about losing his faith and helping others find what works for them to live a better life. Brian Peck lives in Idaho and works as a licensed clinical social worker and secular therapist specializing in those struggling with losing their religious faith and identities. He grew up in Pennsylvania in the conservative holiness movement and first started to see things differently in his 20s when he worked alongside a charismatic pastor doing missionary work in the Philippines, China, and Honduras. Yeah, you know, I think um, for me, you know, having that experience was a way to see the difference between what was presented behind the pulpit and what was actually happening on the ground. And and so um, I think for me, I realized like, well, I think a lot of times you have to be a good storyteller to be a pastor um, or an evangelist or a missionary. Mm-hmm. And and so like for me, some of the... the the facts weren't lining up. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the questions around theology and, and the truth claims uh, that people were making, I think that certainly um, began to erode away at my, at my faith. And so, yeah, I think that certainly had a, a lot to do with that. And then, and then also kind of recognizing that, uh, you know, people in positions of power um, aren't always um, the people you think they are. And so, you know, getting the behind the scenes look at that and, and recognizing, I don't know, some of the what felt to me like manipulation, um, exploitation, and it just it just didn't sit well. And, and I think that certainly was part of my journey um, out of out of my faith. What's an example of something that you saw kind of behind the scenes that, that helped kind of change your view of what was going on? Yeah, I think um, probably a lot of little things. Um, it really, I think the the person I was traveling with um, had a way of telling a story that made it seem just amazing, right? And and then the experience on the ground for me was more mundane, and um, it almost felt like we were just taking people's money. I, I funded my own travel, um, worked mm-hmm. hard, and you know, but he was taking money from uh, different churches. It, it just felt like kind of vacationing in some ways, you know, maybe do uh, a service or, or so in, you know, a, a local um, church or something. But really, um, I don't know, it just, I just can't really put my finger on it, but it just felt like, ah, oh, this isn't quite, quite right, you know. And so, you know, all the people coming to Christ and all the, you know, the excitement around that, it was like, oh, it, it, I didn't, I didn't see that personally. And so, um yeah, just that, be, that became challenging. It felt it felt dishonest at, at some level, and and um, yeah. So I think that was, yeah. Without sharing specifics, I guess I think that's um, it. Just didn't feel right. Tell me a little bit about your transition at that point. So you're doing this missionary work, and you start to have doubts about things. What happens then? Yeah. So I um, I think in in Bible college, it really started around these. Um, really narrowly focused theological kinds of debates about which Christian faith or which Christian church had the right doctrine. And 
And then that once I started realizing like, well, there's so much differences between how the Baptists versus the Methodists, you know, and all these different groups, how they have like different interpretations of the Bible and how mine was the right one, of course. And I, you know, felt very certain about that. And then once I started to question that and or explore different ways of, of being Christian, right? Like the, the variation within Christianity um, led me to start asking some bigger questions. And so, you know, I think in, in most cases, um, people who leave religion have this very kind of slow, gradual process and w- with some more significant events along the way. And so I think I'm, I'm no different than, than the average person leaving religion in, in that respect. Um, so I, I think when I um, left the Bible college where I was attending and started taking classes at Penn State kind of part-time, as a way to, you know, work on a, a degree that I could do something with eventually. Um, I, I met people who were non-religious and all the kind of caricatures and stereotypes that I had um, believed as part of the church mm-hmm. um, pretty much weren't holding up. And so um, that, that really caused me to question. And then another kind of significant event for me, I was um, taking a protest literature class and I was sitting around um, a circle of, of you know, fellow classmates and reading really challenging literature about um, people who, who suffered because of beliefs like mine. And I recognized how much kind of pain <laughs> my, my own personal beliefs were causing other people and the policies that, that I was advocating for and the way I wanted the world to be and how I wanted, you know, it just, I recognize how oppressive that was, you know, historically, but then also um, kind of in real time, um, recognizing that, that my beliefs were having a, a really kind of harmful and negative impact on others. And so I think for me, um, wanting to have, you know, wanting to be a compassionate human and caring about others, I recognize I couldn't kind of persist in uh, a system or a structure where um, I was harming others, and so that that caused me to you know ask even more questions, and and before long, um, you know there just wasn't the Christianity wasn't able to uh, it wasn't big enough <laughs> for me to you know be the compassionate person that I wanted to be, and I I did some um, movements towards progressive Christianity, um, I didn't give that a ton of effort, and so I know there are I have you know Christian friends who. Are quite progressive and they can you know square the teachings of the bible with you know their own humanism and i can appreciate that um but that that certainly wasn't my journey why do you think progressive christianity didn't appeal to you i i think it did um but honestly i think the way that fundamentalism kind of gets in your head and influences how you see the world for me, it was um, kind of this all or nothing approach. And I've, I've mm. since, <laughs> you know, done my own personal work around that. And, and that's uh, one of the reasons why I'm, you know, involved in, in the work that I do now is, is because I see um, how fundamentalism isn't just, you know, tied to the, the beliefs themselves, but it's, it's kind of a way of thinking. It's a way of being. And so I think my fundamentalism as a as a Christian uh, almost in some ways precluded me from um, accepting a, a more kind of um, watered down or nuanced version of Christianity, and so 
uh, yeah, I think that's probably um, why it was more of a clean break at that point. Hmm. And um, yeah, and so, but then fundamentalism for me um, showed up again in my life. And so um, not as religious fundamentalism, but as, as that kind of way of approaching the world uh, started to influence um, kind of my more progressive views. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, I think. Um, yeah, that being really all in as a fundamentalist Christian, um, you know, I wasn't wasn't able to cognitively at that stage um, entertain the ideas of progressive Christianity as much. What was your family's reaction to this change in you? You know, it wasn't it wasn't that significant at the time, and I think partially because it kind of coincided with um, getting married, moving across the country. Um, just kind of slowly, you know, moving away from my former beliefs, but not in a um, as visible a way, I guess. And so mm-hmm. I think my uh, my family certainly probably suspected things along the way, certainly saw shifts in my, my political views and, and so forth. Um, but it wasn't until, oh, probably um, nine or ten years after having kind of transitioned away from believing my former beliefs that I, um, you know, kind of was more intentional about being open to my family. And, you know, I, I, I didn't get rejected. Um, certainly I think my family cares about me and, you know, got some of the typical responses like, you know, just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean he doesn't believe in you. And, um, but nothing, more significant than that. I think partially because, um, like I said, kind of reestablished my life across the country from where I grew up and not really having that kind of community ties. I know um, I work with individuals who um, it's much more challenging or more difficult to transition um, out of um, their religion because of the proximity of of their relationships. And so, um, yeah, for me, it wasn't, wasn't as significant. So you didn't feel a sense of loss that a lot of people feel? I, I, yeah, certainly I would, I would say I felt loss. Um, you know, one of the, the common experiences, and I think it's for me as well, um, you know, setting aside those old beliefs, I mean, it was, it was scary as well. I mean, I think <laughs> I talked to, you know, lifelong um, secular individuals who, who have never, you know, kind of been part of an organized religion. And, and for those of us who have been, you know, really immersed inside of, especially a really, um, a religion that demands a lot from us. Um, it's, it's challenging to move outside of that group. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, um, the reason why it's scary is, is actually, I think there's these kind of evolutionarily adaptive reasons why, um, it's quite scary. And because we evolved in groups and, to be cast outside of a group was in some ways like a death sentence, right? Like you can't survive on your own. You need, you need to contribute to the group and the group contributes to your well-being. And so we can have this very kind of cognitive, um, logical, rational kind of deconstruction, deconversion, but there's this more kind of a visceral um, reaction to leaving one's religion. And I think that that um, in some ways is is this um, kind of evolutionarily adaptive survival, um, you know, skill of shame <laughs> keeps you part of the group so that you can contribute to the group. And if you leave a group, 
then you'll feel that sense of loss, that sense of shame, um, you know, in ways that aren't logical, um, but in ways that are, are very real, uh, very visceral. And so, um, you know, I think that was, there was quite a bit of time where um, I didn't believe the old, my old beliefs, but certainly they were impacting my life in that, in that kind of um, visceral way. So now that you're a therapist and you specialize in talking to people who are transitioning from religious to religious or a theistic worldview to an atheistic one, what made you want to focus on that? Was it your own experience? Was it something you saw in other people? What was that? Yeah, I think it was a combination of, of, of those two factors and, and additional factors as well. I, I kind of alluded to, um, you know, having this experience where I, um, well, I'll, I'll just I'll just describe it to, to you. I was in in graduate school, um, and and my partner, we I'd met when um, I was still kind of at the last stages of my deconstruction, deconversion, um, that kind of cognitive uh, process of you know asking the questions, coming up with different conclusions than what I was taught, and and kind of rejecting old beliefs. And so she was part of that that uh, transition at the end, the the last kind of gasp of my uh, religious fundamentalism mm-hmm. and so so she she knew me in that way um and so i was in several years later i was in graduate school and um, one day she said to me uh, you know brian you're still a fundamentalist you're just fundamentalist about different things now hmm. and and that hit me pretty hard you know uh, i mean mostly because it was true and and then also i, I, just, I just really didn't know what to do about it I realized that I had, um, in the same way that I had enemies, you know, I'd clearly identified who the the evil people were and who the good people were. Um, I was still kind of organizing the world in that way, um, as as a fairly progressive person who cared a lot about, you know, humanity and human well being. And so, I think for me, realizing that it wasn't enough to kind of go through that process if all I achieved was a different set of beliefs if, if this kind of fundamental way of being in the world was still um, not very healthy for me and, and not very effective as well so it's almost like the mindset that you had when you were a fundamentalist Christian kind of continued and you just kind of changed the beliefs around that but you still had that mindset yeah I mean I think that's a really great way of, of describing that and and so yeah I think for me um, recognizing that that this kind of almost this um, need for certainty and this need to be right in this oh, way of kind of forcing um, very complex and messy ideas into very neat and tidy boxes. Um, I mean, I can see now having you know studied this a bit more and, and I can understand kind of the psychology behind that and why our brain you know wants to conserve energy and we you know, stereotypes and biases are, are just like part of um, how we do that. And, and so I, I mean, I can see that and I have compassion for the version of me who was, you know, very fundamentalist, both as a Christian, and as as a as a, you know, as a non believer. And, and yet I, I realized that that way of approaching the world wasn't wasn't really healthy for me. And, and so it was during that time that I, um, you know, began to explore you know, different ways of being human. And, um, you know, I'd always been interested in this kind of deconversion process. And so I would take what I was learning in school and, 
in my own personal life and and just kind of look through that lens of how can I take these new skills and techniques and how can I apply them to the deconversion process? So that was something I was already doing when I um, discovered acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And, and so for me, it's been probably one of the most um, effective antidotes to uh, fundamentalism. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. So I think you know, your listeners can can do a little, a little research on, on ACT as well online. But at its heart, um, we humans typically suffer around um, inflexibility, uh, around language especially. Mm. And so um, within, within my religious um, upbringing, there was a, quite a focus on, you know, thought control strategies, right? You, you dare not think these type of thoughts or get rid of the evil thoughts and think the pure thoughts. And, um, and in some ways, you really, you set yourself up as a human. <laughs> it's kind of like the, you know, uh, don't think of a jelly-filled donut. Um, you know, the more you commit yourself to, like, not thinking a certain thought, the more that thought is kind of salient in your experience. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that um, these these ways of organizing the world inside of fundamentalism were very rigid and very kind of rule governed behavior um, around like you must do the the correct things in a correct way. And if you don't, well, then, you know, um, we have a, a solution for that, but you have to you know, ask for forgiveness. And, and in some ways kind of creating this, um, this unhealthy cycle. And um, within acceptance and commitment therapy, we're not so focused on you know, is this true or false? Um, I think there's a place for that. Um, but kind of practically speaking, inside of this model, um, we're more concerned about how it functions for you. Mm-hmm. And is it working or not? And so when you start to see the world through, um, is this working? And n- not just is it working, but like, how much does it cost you? You know, assuming that whatever behavior you're engaged in, comes at a cost. And so um, for me, that shift really allowed me to focus on, um, is this working in, in, in terms of does this promote human well-being or not? And um, and shifting away from these kind of intractable arguments of is this true or not? Um, because frankly, I'm not that interested in, in those types of questions um, now. I'm more interested in, in kind of the, the process underneath that. I find that really interesting because I know that we as an atheist community really get um, I don't know if bogged down is the right term, but with these arguments of of the truth or falsehood of a particular thing. Um, and a lot of people, that's their journey um, into a secular worldview you know, from religion. Um, but it's interesting that even before you kind of formally studied this technique, that that's almost what brought you out. I mean, you talked about, um, you know, seeing the harm that was that mm-hmm. religion was doing, and that was one of the reasons you you transitioned out, not necessarily the truth or falseness of a particular doctrine. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, you know, it was, my transition out was a, a combination, of course, because I was kind of exploring those kind of philosophical questions, but but really... I think my fundamentalism was probably strong enough in some ways to withstand the philosophical questions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't strong enough to withstand 
the um, this simply doesn't work for me. Right. I can't persist in this way of being in the world, knowing that it's harming other people who I care about. And 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 I think, um, as you point out, the, the atheist community and, and secular community often are really focused on 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 you know the truth claims. And and I think I think from from a, a well-intentioned place, right? Like if we can undermine these truth claims, then how these beliefs function in the world will be reduced. And and I don't think they're wrong in that assumption, right? Because if you can kind of undermine um, the truth claims of a particular group, um, then you might be able to undermine their you know influence in in society. And so. But on on the other hand, I think that also has the the ability to you know have the backfire effect that we know about in psychology, where where now you are engaged in this kind of struggle around you know these beliefs, and only secondarily are you focused on uh, on like their actual function in the world and how they're impacting you know other humans, and so I, I think and partially why I really love the work you're doing as well is focusing on. Like, how can we be human in a way that's maybe not like the quote-unquote correct way or the only way or the right way, but in a way that is at least interested in how my behavior impacts others, um, how it functions, not whether it's true or not necessarily, but like, is it useful? Is it healthy? Is it helpful? And, and those questions, for me at least, um, lead to a place of openness, a place of um, really um, humility, you know what is it that that actually works mm-hmm. um and so there's there's a bit of uncertainty there and like what works and we have to ask the, the questions about context you know and like how does that influence that and so I, I think you can you can arrive at um just more useful um strategies for being human if you're not so focused on i need to find the right way um yeah, or, or what's true in this kind of big capital T true kind of way, um, because really that's that's not that's not what's like to be human. You know, we're this kind of ongoing process of change, and so as soon as we say, well, this is the correct way or this is the ideal way to be human, I think we start missing out on 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 the fact that we're constantly changing. Yeah, and I, I it's interesting too. You mentioned that because change, even change for the better, can be very unnerving for people. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly the case. And um, I think when people leave religion, especially from a very fundamentalist um, religion, where things were 100, 100% certain, like absolutely certain that this is the truth. And and when you leave that, then it's like there's this void and you your brain wants this kind of same level of certainty on the other side. And, and I'm not here to say that science is a, is a religion, but I think science can serve that desire for having some more certainty and i know the, the beauty of science and, and obviously i'm i know the d- difference between um kind of fundamentalist religion religion and 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 science um and, and science has this kind of you know we th- think we're correct um you know we're fairly certain uh, but we're all we always could be wrong and i think that's where fundamentalism doesn't have that we could be wrong piece to it mm-hmm. and so it's not quite as valuable but but in some ways that that need for certainty that the way that functions like i want to know how the world works uh, why well because it's less scary when i have a sense of certainty about how the world works 
and in holding space for the uncertainty or, or seeing the value in that uh, of things changing and, and evolving um I just I, I our brains really aren't you know we didn't evolve to be okay with uncertainty and so um so i think that's a, a practice that one has to to develop if if in fact they value that i'm not saying a person has to you know be psychologically flexible um, i just think um overall that tends to work for more people it, it probably helps yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, yeah, and, and again, that's, I, and I recognize that that's a bias I have because I'm really invested in, you know, psychological flexibility being a useful way of being human. And so if a person were to show me how it's not always useful or there's other ways that can be useful in different contexts, I'll admit <laughs> that there's enough, uh, you know, kind of fundamentalism left inside of me that I would, I would struggle with that, right? And so, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, so I think really focusing on the individual themselves. Um, and then I think you can expand it out to the community as well, but really focusing on like, is this working or not? And what are the unintended consequences or the, you know, the price you're paying for this particular um, way of organizing or being human. So tell me a bit about the work you're doing now. Yeah. So um, since, since graduate school, I'm, a licensed clinical social worker here in in Idaho, and I see individuals in my um, in my therapy office here in Boise, as well as online throughout the state. And I also work with individuals who are leaving religion, and uh, in this kind of coaching role, where we use these kind of evidence based principles um, that I'm referring to, and apply them to the process of deconversion. I'm really not that interested in kind of those philosophical questions um, because I think there are just just tons of resources out there already. If a person wants to, you know, read about all the debates, you know, ask the big philosophical questions, um, like there's a lot of support to do that that already exists. Mm -hmm. I think what what I what I recognized though was um, that's only kind of like one part of the deconversion process is that kind of, you know, logical, um, rational, cognitive, um, you know, process. And then there's the oh, kind of a more holistic approach, right? Like what's the, you know, how's this impacting your relationships? What are the, you know, kind of psychological processes that you went through, you know, having a, a better understanding of, you know, these old ways of thinking, what was kind of at the heart of that? And, um, and so I think for me, that's what I'm really passionate about. Um, mm -hmm. it's not so much, I, I don't, <laughs> in the work that I do, if a person wants to maintain their beliefs if they want to progress to a more progressive form of Christianity, if they want to, you know, move beyond belief altogether, um, I'm not here to decide kind of what their goal is. Um, but I want them to where, wherever they land, um, for it to be a place that they kind of feel good about, that they've arrived at on their own, and it feels very connected to their own values and not some external source of values. Are there common threads you see in the issues that people have when leaving faith communities or having questions or doubts about their own faith? You know, yeah, they really, they really are. And um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, stereotypes that believers have about non-believers that just aren't based in reality. And you know, we could go through a whole list of those. And, 
and talk about why they're not true. But I think one of the, um, the big ones is that, um, you know, people who go through this process almost without exception are the ones who were really committed to taking their beliefs seriously. Hmm. And, and so that, that kind of stereotype of, you know, you just want to go out and sin or you just want to re- reject God. I think there are people who do that. <laughs> My experience are, is that those people um, maybe aren't non-believers. <laughs> they're just rejecting their beliefs in this kind of way. They're living in, living, quote unquote, living in sin, but they still believe in God, right? <laughs> they mm-hmm. think they're going to go to hell, but they're like, it's worth it because I'm you know having a good time. Right. I think people who, who I who I work with are individuals who um, typically um, ask the hard questions. They and, and in fact, most of them really wanted their faith to work. Right? They said, "I care deeply about these truth claims. I want to know more about that. I want to ask the hard questions." And so, I think it's really common for a person to um, to try really hard to you know or take their faith really seriously. And to have that kind of unravel on them. And so um, I think in some ways, if I were to offer advice to believers who want to maintain their faith, I might suggest that they, you know, just don't take it too seriously. Be kind of like your mediocre Christian because um, you will probably be able, be able to persist in your faith and your beliefs longer if you're not like really serious about it. And so um, I think that's that's a pretty common um, thread. Um I think the other common experience, and, and this is not always the case, uh, really depends on if you're coming from a more fundamentalist uh, background or not, uh, but that kind of vacuum or that void that shows up once you realize your faith, or your beliefs no longer hold up, and then this kind of wanting to fill that with something else, I think that's um, a really common experience. What do people fill it with? generally you know i think it really varies depending on depending on the person um and again because i'm not so focused on the specific thing that they're doing but on how it's functioning i I think it's really common though for individuals to kind of live in relationship to their former beliefs in this kind of way where where their former beliefs are the thing that they're rejecting or pushing away Hmm. and um and, and again, thinking about not thinking of a jelly-filled donut, you know, if you're trying to like not have that thought or that experience or, or are rejecting that, um, you know, kind of implicit in that struggle is the thing that you're trying to reject. And I think um, a lot of times, um, former believers especially, um, you know, will become more activist in rejecting truth claims. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that they kind of remain um, kind of tethered to those truth claims. And so I, I, I'm, there's no judgment around whether or not that's a useful way to live one's life because I think it's a perfectly useful and legitimate way to live one's life if you're choosing that. I think most, in a lot of cases, people aren't necessarily choosing to remain engaged in the struggle with old, old beliefs, but they... Um, they just find themselves there because they need something, um, you know, they realize their old beliefs didn't work. They want to push them away or they need to have some kind of certainty on the other side of that. Hmm. And it partially defines them too. You know, they get a definition from rejecting something almost like before they define themselves as Christian. Uh, now a lot of the, uh, the way they identify themselves Mm -hmm. is kind of against that. 
Right. And, and, I, and I think that's, if you think about kind of um, the way that functions in terms of organizing community and, you know, a sense of identity, um, a person who has grown up inside of a religious group, if they just identify as atheist um, or non-believer, you know, I think that's only part of the picture, right? Because mm -hmm. those former ways of being in the world um, certainly inform who they are now or have influenced them. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think it becomes a real challenge because now I am a former believer. I am an ex-evangelical. I am whatever this label is that you want to, a you know, post-theist, you know, whatever that label is that you want to attach to yourself and, and how that will kind of, you know, how you'll form identity around that. Um, that might be a really great transitional label, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point, what is it that you kind of positively care about? What is it that you actively want to be engaged in? What do you, what do you want to be intentional about in your life? And, and most people who have gone through this process, I think, um, just don't, they don't want to be stuck there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yet it's really hard to know how to move beyond that. And, um, because it was so much a part of your life. And, and I think that's where, I mean, that's where I, that's where I see people uh, suffering the most a after they've gone through this process. So there's like the people will, will often say like, you know, I've you know, left religion years ago and, you know, I'm, I'm done with that kind of deconversion process. And, and, and they're probably correct in that, that kind of very cognitive, um, process is, is pretty much done, right? They, They've arrived at conclusions that satisfy them, and they're they're good with that. Um, what what often isn't addressed, though, is that you know these other um, processes that are useful for you know moving beyond and, and connecting with life on the other side of faith, and and it's not it's not just a rational or logical or cognitive kind of process. There's there's a lot more going on there too. By the way, I just want to mention I really do love the name of your practice, I guess, is that, would practice be the right word yeah, for this? Yeah, yeah, it's a practice, sure. Yeah, um, which is Room to Thrive. Yeah. Where, yeah did that, I, where did that name come from? Because I, I think it just, it really encapsulates what you're saying, too, where you're not telling people what to think, or um, you're just, you want to give them room to thrive. Right, yeah, and I think that's really, you know, when I first, um, I worked in a, in, a, in a clinic setting for, for quite a few years, and then I branched out on my own partially, so I could you know, focus on, on this type of work. And I mean, it, it's, it's always hard to name, um, a practice or something that, you know, business or whatever that kind of has, you know, has captured some idea. Mm -hmm. And, and, and for me, this, this room to thrive is, you know, kind of between the difficult stuff and the life you want, there's, there's some space there. Right. And, and, you know, in that space, in that kind of pause between, you know, stimulus and response, you can make a choice about what it is you're going to do. And, and I think, um, for me, it's, it's not that, um, I, I just don't know that it's enough to move beyond religion. If you're also, I mean, if you're not also kind of committed to, um, engaging in life in, in, in a way that really works for you. And, um, and I think that's where, yeah, a lot of times people will go through this process without, um, coming out on the other side in a way that feels very connected to who they are, very kind of grounded in their own experience, um, in a way that honors their own values and what they want their life to be about. And I, I think it, when you have this kind of top-down authority, 
and this measuring stick that you're measuring success against as a as a believer to to not have that given to you when you leave but to kind of create that and um you know i think that's in, in my experience that takes a bit of focus and intention and and my my passion really is to make that process as, as easy and as quick as possible um so that a person can you know, just get on with living this one life that we have to live. How do you think we in the atheist community can better help those transitioning from a religious worldview to an atheistic one? I mean, that's just a really great question. And and, and I'm, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of different answers to that. The one that comes to mind, um, I don't think we serve individuals very well by making it appear that this process has to be a struggle, that mm. you have to have the right arguments, that you have to d- defeat this other belief, you know. Um, and, and again, I see value in that, and I think that's that's an amazing kind of way to to focus your energy. Um, but but I think to to focus on that, it, it, it's almost like then now you have to find the correct way of believing in the same way that. A fundamentalist religious person would say the Bible's the correct beliefs, right? And then, and then you're left in this kind of you know struggle, this kind of like who um, who wins this battle, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think when we focus on that, and then this uh, this kind of birth into you know atheism or um, non-belief or secularism is this is this kind of really painful, difficult process of like. I've rejected all my old beliefs or the ones that didn't work for me. And, and now I'm this, you know, I see the world through this, you know, very materialistic uh, lens and, and I've arrived at some level. Right. And, um, I, I think that's certainly one way of doing it. Um, but you can also say like, this just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that can be sufficient. Right. And a person says, well, you know, but the Bible says this, or this is what, you know, I believe. I'm like, okay, that's great. Like, it sounds like you're describing something that works for you. Like, rock on. Um, We can talk about how those beliefs function. We can talk about when your religious beliefs are impinging on my freedoms. And so, like, I think that those are really important conversations that are about how beliefs function. Um, But shifting away from this, you know, is this true or not? And it's kind of very, um, especially a lot of truth claims, you just can't, you know, kind of falsify. And so, so then you're really setting yourself up to, you know, not win that argument when it feels like the argument is so important to win. Um, and, and so I think in some ways kind of sidestepping that a bit and, and realizing that, you know, you can be human a lot of different ways. And um, in most cases, people who are leaving religion are leaving because, you know, it isn't true for them um, or that they find that it's not the truth claims aren't, you know, convincing enough for them to believe in them. But even underneath all that is, is, is really just doesn't work um, for that person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I think (laughs) it's really, if I could give advice to people who have left religion and they're faced with these questions from family members or others who are like, Oh, you're like, why don't you believe anymore? You know, that's an, an invitation to have a very uh, long and protracted kind of argument over, you know, biblical truth claims or whatever. And, and you can just simply say, Hey, you know what? It just didn't work for me. And, um, and just leave it at that in some ways. 
and then and then focus on like what does work for me and i think that's a different focus and again kind of you know back to this these underlying principles that i base my work on is this you know a focus on curiosity and openness and exploring and 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 that's trying to find the next truth that's true in every single context in every single way um i think that such such yourself up for kind of like really limiting and narrowing your focus as opposed to kind of expanding out and, and and just testing things out like you'll try things that don't work for you and that's really good data because now you know this particular way of being human doesn't work for me and and i think we can you know certainly be informed by other people's experiences and you know like best practices and what typically works uh, of course um but at the end of the day mm -hmm. it's like like what works for me is is a really important question as opposed to is this true um in this kind of absolute way you talk to a lot of people um who are going through these issues in their lives and talking about all these things and you've ob obviously helped them um, in understanding themselves more how have they helped you understand yourself more or have you know they? i think yeah they really they really have it and it's interesting i think most therapists uh, most people who enter this type of profession um are are wanting to do their own personal work as well mm -hmm. you know this kind of idea of the the wounded healer you know person who's been hurt in some way and and then they realize um you know from an empathetic place that they want others to um, not experience what they've experienced and so um you know, I think my own way of understanding my myself has been, I, I see my own struggle through other people's struggles, right? And, um, and recognizing um, just, I, I guess I'm, I'm often just really inspired. Um, it's, it, you just don't <laughs> know the honor it is to be with another person when they're doing important work. And, um, and as a therapist, my job isn't to give advice or, um, you know, like this is how you have to live your life. Or, and in fact, I think so much of my work is, is when a person's asking for advice to be like, oh no, that's not how that works because that's where you got stuck before, where you had enough rules to govern your behavior in a way that you could be acceptable to an organization. And it's, it's not your job to follow my rules to be acceptable to me as a human. It's your job to find out like, you know, what works for you. And so um, I, I guess I'm, you know, often inspired by people's courage as they move through this process. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's heartbreaking at times and it's super rewarding as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm just continually learning um, as I, you know, interact with others who are going through the process and yeah. What are your goals for the future? That's a really great question. I mean, I have things I wanna do and, and you know, I never, even though I kind of traveled around and, and did a little bit of missionary type work, it was, um, I never was a leader in a church. I never, I don't see myself as a leader. And, and so that kind of, in some ways is preventing me from uh, taking some steps in my career that I wanna be taking or that I, I think would be useful to take. Um, and so I, I guess I, I'm really interested in finding just more efficient ways of, of getting these ideas out there, um, of, you know, of 
continually evolving and enhancing these types of strategies to help people move through um, their their own deconversion and to, and to connect to more um, with their own humanity. You know, I I don't know that I don't know that this is what I want to do forever. Um, I have two boys who I um, who I love and spend time with and, and enjoy. Um, you know, and so I think, yeah, I j just like, you know, the whole big questions of does God exist and so forth no longer do much for me. I'm much more interested in, you know, being present and connecting with the humans in my life who I care about. And, and so, yeah, I, I guess what my goals are, um, I would like to help others you know, live the life that they want from this place of freely chosen values and things that they care about themselves, um, live in a way that works for them. Um, and, but as far as that being some tangible goal that I'm aiming for, it's, I guess it's just really about the, the, the process of, of getting these ideas out there and, and sharing with others. It's about the journey more than the destination. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I think that really is, it hasn't always been that way, but I'm beginning to model the kinds of um, ideas that I really uh, value more. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I don't see my, myself as this kind of concrete thing that has to be, you know, tended to and, you know, have to reach certain goals in order to be acceptable. It's really about, um, it really is about that kind of journey or that process. And, and it, it can be unsettling to, um, not have that, you know, kind of solid or fixed um, um, concept of self. But I think it's also quite freeing to uh, to think of oneself as an ongoing process of change and connecting with that process more than particular outcomes that you're aiming for. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there will be things that that happen in my life, things that I contribute to in a way that in ways that feel meaningful to to me. Um, but I hope um, that it'll be really inspired by and connected to the process more than you know. Brian strove for this thing and he achieved it, and then you know, what do you get a gold star or something? Um, <laughs> I, I think it's it's really about like the process, and and so um, yeah, I, I think yeah, connecting to the process more. Um, and being more fully present in the, in, in the experience as it's happening um, is probably a goal that I'm aim aiming for. That seems to be good advice for all of us, I think. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to say than it is to do, unfortunately. So. Oh, yeah. I had this interesting experience the other day where I looked back at, uh, I logged into Instagram for the first time in a while, and I looked at the photos that I posted there of you know traveling around and speaking and different places I visited, um, working on the film and the book and all that. And I looked at this and I thought, wow, that person's life looks really cool. <laughs> like completely forgetting really that it was yes. something that I experienced because when you're kind of in the moment, when you're in inside the bubble, you don't see it mm -hmm. the same as you do when you're outside. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it, so true. Right. And when you are really holding tightly to this concept or this idea of like how things are supposed to be, and I think this happens with religious and non-religious people alike, um, it, it's it, it becomes narrowing and and that's useful for accomplishing you know specific goals that you have um, but then if it's not not also connected to like actually being present as you're experiencing that um, then you're 
achieving the goal, but you're not actually ex experiencing the process. And um, yeah, I think that's <laughs> your experience is, is incredibly common. And it's that, I think it's that experience of, you know, traveling for an hour on the road and then looking up and like, you know, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> right. Because I have no concept of like, of the time that passed or, you know, yeah. Like the scenery that you've, that that's flown by, you just like, okay, I'm in this zone. I'm just kind of inside of my own, my own thoughts. And, and of course, you know, we can't be fully present as humans all the time. It would be um, overwhelming in, in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, cultivating that practice in a way that's, that's useful for each of us, I think is, is worthwhile for sure. It seems to me a lot of, a lot of disappointment in life seems to be that things didn't work out the way they were quote supposed to, which is what mm -hmm. you, you mentioned. Yeah. And when you look back and you think, well, why did I think it was going to be any particular way? And you don't really know. You just had this idea in your mind of, well, it was supposed to be this way. And then it didn't. So you're yeah. disappointed for something happening that you didn't really have any reason for thinking it would be one way or the other anyway. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that the inflexibility that comes when we, um, we kind of should on ourselves, right? Like it should be this way or it needs to be this way. Or it has to be this way, or we just become really connected to a particular way of, of thinking about it. And, and to give ourselves that freedom of like, no, I'm going to, um, you know, in the present moment act and behave in ways that I, I, I find meaningful and connected to my values. And I, you know, am moving in a direction of what matters to me, of course, but I'm not holding tightly to this idea that it has to be a certain way. Um, I, you know, actually I, I use an example with a, a, a client, uh, it's been probably over a year ago now, um, a high school student who was, who had this belief that if they were, um, you know, the most popular kid in school, then somehow life would be easier. And <laughs> I think we've all kind of, um, maybe had, a, a similar thought about, about, you know, about life. And so, mm -hmm. um, we talked about like, well, what have you, you know, what have you, climb that mountain of the most popular kid and and you were objectively the most popular kid in, in the school um you know like well, how would that feel and he's like oh that'd be great you know i'd feel like i've arrived and that'd be better it'd be easier and i'm like okay but i want you to look over there and there's this other mountain and on top of that mountain is the smartest kid right and and notice what happens when you make a comparison between the most popular kid and the smartest kid pretty soon you're feeling dissatisfied in, in, in that experience that you're having. And so then let's assume you climb that mountain and now you're the most popular and the smartest kid. And then you're like, okay, I've, I finally arrived. And then there's the most, there's the most athletic kid. Right. And so pretty, we eventually like created this massive mountain that had, you know, all the, all the possible ways of being the best at being human. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's imagine you're at the very top of that mountain. Right you know, how would it feel then? And, you know, it's like, oh, like I imagine it would be really, re really re rewarding or like I'd feel great. And it's like, well, so, but notice what your brain will do with that. W will it be satisfied with like where you're at? And we explored the possibility of your brain saying like, oh, well, great. You're at the top of this highest peak, um, but it could be higher, right? There's always more stones you could stack on top of one another to be higher. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also, I think that in some ways that's a function of language, right? Um, you can always imagine things being slightly better. And that's a very beautiful thing for humans as we um, evolve, right? But it's also um, 
a recipe for suffering when we compare ourselves against what could be. And there's ne we're ne we never can be satisfied because there's always something more we can do. And so, um, and then also we, we explored the possibility that maybe you're at the top of this mountain and you look down in the valley and there's this person sitting by a river and they've not achieved all the things that you've achieved, but you get a, a, a sense that maybe they are experiencing something that you're not experiencing in, in a way that's really meaningful to them. And so, I mean, I think we, we came to the conclusion that um, you can't do enough to be enough. You can't accomplish enough to, um, to force your brain to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, you know, like it's in some ways that's um, a struggle that you can't win. And so um, why engage in that struggle um, or why not at least sometimes disengage from that struggle and just connect with being in that moment. And um, yeah, so I think that comparison is a thief of joy kind of idea where, yeah, we're always comparing and it should be a certain way. And I think religion often will exploit that kind of natural tendency that the human brain has, you know, mm -hmm. now you have to be perfect or you have to be godly, you have to be a certain way, recognizing that you'll never achieve that. So you always need whatever religion's telling you to, to help you achieve that. Yeah, the downfall of imagination, you can always think of something better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, that's, it's, I think that's, um, the work that I do is recognizes that um, in some ways to solve a problem that's created by language, um, you need to have some way of sidestepping language, at least a, a bit. And um, so to, to not get engaged in that struggle with language, um, because yeah, there's just no way of winning that. You know, I want to serve this population of, of, of individuals who no one's really specializing in, you know, increasing psychological flexibility after, you know, leaving religion. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of um, recovering from religion type groups that are out there and, and different approaches people are using. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I see this very much, even though that's my kind of focus. Um, yeah, I certainly see this as as more of a, um, a common human experience, right? We, we all... Um, we all have these kind of language, uh, languaging brains, right. That want to get caught up in the narrative and the story and in all this comparison that happens and all the suffering that's results from that comparison and, and religion just happens to be one way, um, that, 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 that kind of, um, natural tendency is exploited. Um, but it's certainly exploited by, you know, marketing, it's exploited by capitalism. It's exploited by like lots of different other, you know, human structures. And so, um, yeah, I definitely see this as, as you know, um, way bigger than, than just, you know, helping people move through a deconversion process, but um, hopefully find a way to uh, connect to their own life in a way that's meaningful to them, that allows them at least a little bit of space from, you know, the demands of, of all these structures that aren't, aren't healthy for us. So, Thank you so much for joining me, Brian. I really appreciate it. You bet. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com. <laughs>